I want to take a minute here to remind you that also part of our breakthrough campaign is um, uh, our new small groups. So we have, um, we're organizing 12 brand new small groups. We're organizing them around the formation zones of knowledge, community, Christian practices, and there we are. <laughs> Sometimes y'all seem like you're in the dark. I'm always in the dark, but that time, okay, now, now I feel better. Um, so our, uh, form, our small groups, right? So we've got 12 brand new small groups. Uh, we're going to start meeting in January, about a month or six weeks from now. And uh, these are organized around the formation zones. So this is, um, as I just said, this is, these are the places where God meets us, right? We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about these uh, knowledge, community, Christian practices, and mission. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. You know our vision. You know our mission. Being changed by God to love like Jesus. That's transformation and mission. What is God doing in us? What is God doing through us? We want to really lean into those things, those ideas. We want to pay attention to those things. So what I would ask you to do is join one of these groups. We've got room for you. And here's what I'm asking. If you'll commit to just one year, if you'll just do 2023, just commit to one year. Give yourself fully to this. Lean into these places where we already know God's Spirit is at work in us. Lean into more knowledge of who God is and what He's up to in this world and in your life. Lean into doing life with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Lean into Christian practices, dwelling in the Word, praying, fasting, uh, reciting, uh, uh, engaging God more in Word and prayer. And lean into ministry, doing something once a month outside of yourself, with your group, doing Christian mission here in our city. If you'll give yourself to that, I promise you, if you'll just do that for one year in one of these 12 groups, you'll be changed. You'll encounter God in, in what I think will be new and exciting ways. And so if you'll sometime this afternoon, don't do it right now because I'm about to start preaching, but sometime this afternoon, uh, go to the church website, gcrchurch.com. It's on the front of your bulletin. You can slash groups or you can just click connect and it'll say join a group and then you join. Give us your name, tell us you're interested, tell us, you know, there's a couple of questions there. And then uh, by God's grace, you're going to be put into a group that is going to bless you and you're going to be given an opportunity to bless others. So there's that pitch. You're going to hear it a couple of more times. Uh, we want everybody in this church family transformation and mission in our small communities together. Okay, here we go. You ready? Act one. Okay, this is a, this is a, a brief little review. Act one, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created men and women in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very Good. Act two of the story of God is the crash. Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 
So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Act 3, Covenant, Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Exodus chapter 29. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. Why? So that I might dwell among them. Act 4. Christ. From John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. The Gospel of John begins the good news of Act 4 of the story of God, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by quoting from the very first line in the story. John goes all the way back to eternity past. He goes all the way back to creation to tell us who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word. Matthew begins his gospel with 17 verses of genealogy that trace Jesus all the way back to Abraham, on whom the covenant promises in Act 3 were focused. Mark starts his gospel by quoting the Old Testament prophets and showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise God has ever made. And then Luke takes Jesus' genealogy through David and Abraham all the way back to Adam. Son of, son of Adam, son of God, it says, in the beginning. So we've, we've had the intermission, okay? We've, we've had the time between the Old and the New Testaments. We've had 400 years of intermission. And now all four Gospels use their opening lines to remind us of what's happened to bring us to this point. All four writers take the story, they connect it, and now they move it forward. Act 4 is Christ Jesus, the present kingdom. And this is where the story of God just absolutely soars. God himself comes back to the earth he created to live with his people. But this time he comes as a person. The creator of heaven and earth puts on human flesh and blood to live with us and to once and for all save us. This time, God doesn't send an angel or a prophet. He leaves his eternal home in glory to live with us himself. This time, God is not forming men and women from the dust of the earth. God himself enters that dust. He becomes that clay. This is very personal for God because it's his covenant. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel appears to Joseph. 
son of David. And he says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In Luke chapter 1, the same angel tells Mary almost the exact same thing. You're going to be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Remember, John the Baptist identified Jesus at the Jordan River. Remember, he says, behold, which means in Greek, Check it out, you know. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not sins, sin. Sin is the crash. Sin is the breach between God and between his human creation. This is wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is, this is the global corruption. This is the universal sin and death. And God has come here in Jesus Christ to fix it. Personally, Jesus of Nazareth, a real flesh and blood man in the real world history of, of time and place. But he's not just a gifted teacher of profound truths about God. He's not just a revolutionary leader with an inspired vision of a better society. He's not just a perfect moral hero we're supposed to imitate. And he's not just the founder of a religious club that we call church, where admirers of Jesus get together to admire Jesus and to admire themselves for admiring Jesus. No, Jesus is God. He said it himself, remember? If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. These are the words of Jesus. And Jesus really only had one sermon. Here's Jesus' sermon. The kingdom of God is here, present tense, right now. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, right now, among you, he says. Present tense. Jesus is the presence of God's kingdom. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us, presence. And it was weird. Jesus is weird. And I know we don't like to connect words like weird to Jesus. But I'm telling you right now, if you and I are walking down the road, and I look over and I see a guy walking on top of the water on a lake, I'm going to look to you and I'm going to go, hey, look at that. That's weird, isn't it? And you would look at it, and then you'd look at me, and you'd say, yeah, that's weird. Jesus is weird. Money, he has no use for it. Influence, he didn't care about it. Politics, he refused to use it. Power, he never played it. Jesus is really weird. And the more we cater to those kinds of things, the more we buckle under to those kinds of things, the more we compromise with people who value those things and use those things, the more and more we're reminded we are not very much like our Lord Jesus. So God became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and he immediately begins to reverse the curse of sin and death. He starts changing things back to the way they were in Act 1, back in the beginning. 
In Matthew chapter 4, it's kind of, a, kind of a neat little summary of what Jesus is doing here with his ministry. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Jesus heals the sick because there is no disease in the Garden of Eden. Jesus feeds the hungry because there's no need in the Garden of Eden. Jesus raises the dead because there are no cemeteries in the beginning. He eats with Jews and Gentiles. He shares meals with religious leaders and secular sinners because in the beginning there are no divisions or distinctions among people. Jesus reaches out to women. He calls and commissions women because Adam and Eve were equals in the Garden of Eden. Jesus calms the storm because the earth and the sky and the seas were made by God to cooperate with humans, not destroy them. Jesus forgives sins because God created every one of us in the image of God to live in righteous relationship with God and with one another in the beginning. Jesus is here on this earth actively reversing the curse. He's fixing everything that's broken. He's making right everything that's gone so horribly wrong. And he's right here with us, present with us. Emmanuel, this is God with us, eating with us, worshiping with us, laughing and crying with us, blessing our children, going to funerals and weddings with us. Thousands of people traveled miles and days just to hear the words fall off his lips, just to feel the love in the touch of his divine hand. People were cheering. Little kids were crawling all over him. People were climbing trees just to see him. People were ripping roofs off houses just to get to him. God with us. And then Jesus did something only he could do. Jesus did something to finally and ultimately and completely reverse the curse and destroy the effects of sin and death and Satan forever. He died. He died on a cross on purpose. Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem and he walked to the cross. He allowed himself to be beaten and tortured. He allowed them to nail his hands and his feet to the blood-soaked wood of that cross. He died willingly. He sacrificed himself. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. That's what he came here to do, the Lamb of God. Here to take away the sin of the world. And for the past 2,000 years, we've developed all kinds of theories as to why Jesus had to suffer and die on a cross so our sins could be forgiven. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, the ransom theory says that Jesus had to pay our debt because of our sin. 
the substitution theory says Jesus had to take my rightful place on the cross for me. Propitiation is a fancy word that just means, well, God's wrath had to be satisfied. His anger had to be gratified because of sin. And so Jesus took the brunt of the punishment instead of me. Those are all decent theories. But let us point out this morning, let us observe and let us take it into our hearts that in the Gospels, in the story itself, it's not about what Jesus had to do. It's about what Jesus did. They're not explaining what God had to do to save us. They're telling us what God did. He died for us. He died a terrible death. He died. And what happened at the cross maybe shouldn't be studied and discussed as much as it should be meditated on and pondered. It should be absorbed. It shouldn't just be categorized and described. I want to read the account of the crucifixion from the Gospel of Mark. And I'd like to ask you just to listen. If you'll make a commitment right now for the next couple of minutes, don't talk to anybody, don't get a drink out of your sippy cup, don't go to the bathroom. Listen to what God did when he came here in Jesus Christ. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him, nine o'clock in the morning. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now remember, Jesus Christ is God. This is God. This is the creator of heaven and earth. And so God does not inflict pain on someone to appease his wrath or to satisfy his justice. God is on the cross absorbing all the pain and all the violence and all the evil in the world into himself. He is becoming our sin for us. And so our God is not like all the other gods who demand the blood of humans in order to appease their wrath. God becomes human and offers his own blood. This is how he saves us. This is how he loves us to the point of absurdity, to the point of dying on the cross purposefully, willfully, stubbornly, Dying on the cross to destroy forever sin and death and Satan and everything that might separate us from a righteous relationship with God. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was this Beautiful and imposing barrier between the people of God and the visible, physical presence of God. God lived in the temple. Remember, he lived in the Holy of Holies. That's where God's glory dwelt, behind the curtain in the temple. That's where God was. And only the high priest of Israel could go into the presence of God, and only then he could go in one time a year. That was it, on behalf of the people. And the curtain is described by Josephus, who is a contemporary historian of this time. He describes it as 80 feet high. I don't know how high the middle of this room is. Am I even close if I say that's about 40 feet up? Would you say that? Y'all look up there. Is that like 40 feet or am I, am I crazy? Somebody help me out. Am I close? No. Eric's like, whatever you say. Okay. <laughs> if that's 40 feet... The temple curtain is 80 feet high, okay? It's twice as tall as this room. And the way Josephus describes it in the first century, he says it's a, a Babylonian tapestry with embroidery of blue and fine linen, of scarlet also and purple, wrought with marvelous skill. It was woven with the entire panorama of the heavens. He describes it as so beautiful and so breathtaking. And, and, and this is like a national treasure. It's so precious to them. But this curtain was a barrier that separated God from his people. Direct access to the presence of God, to, 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 to the room where his glory is, it had been denied, but not anymore. Not anymore. 
Now at the death of Jesus, the curtain that shielded God's glory is ripped wide open. The veil is torn down. And now everybody can bask in the loving presence of God. The barrier between the creator and his created has been torn away by the death of Jesus. The religious leaders can't rope God off from the people anymore. Everybody in the world now has direct access to God through this new and living way. No more sacrifices. The Lamb of God has been offered. No more priests. Now, because of Jesus' death, we are all priests, worshiping and working and serving together in the presence of God. The torn curtain now lets people in, and it also lets out the glory of God. The presence of God isn't confined anymore to a national shrine of stone and brick. God's glory now floods the earth. Remember at his baptism? Remember when Jesus was baptized, the, the skies were ripped open? Is the, the word in the Greek for ripped, torn open. And the Holy Spirit descended. Now at Jesus' death, the veil is ripped, torn. Same word. And God's Holy Spirit is now available to the whole world. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And I know this Roman military commander saw the sky turn dark and he felt the earth shake. And maybe he got a text from somewhere inside the city that told him about the curtain being torn in the temple. Maybe he heard the reports of dead people walking around the city. And of course, that had an impact on everybody who was there that day. But I think this centurion was mainly focused on watching Jesus on the cross. That was his job, to watch Jesus die. He's watching this, this king and when they insulted Jesus, Jesus blessed them. And when they beat him, Jesus loved them. And when they nailed him to the cross, Jesus forgave them. And this soldier saw how Jesus died, and it changed him. I think it turned his whole world upside down. Think about it. Jesus is a king, but he dies like a criminal. He's rejected and he's killed by the very people he came to save. He's the mighty son of God, but he did not use his power for himself. Everything's been reversed here. With Jesus, weakness is strength and death is the way to eternal life. Everything's upside down. Jesus' sacrificial death means that Caesar and all the values that Caesar's world is built on are in trouble. It's faithful obedience unto death. It is not a mighty act of power that converts even the executioner here. God and his people, yes, are going to change the world, but not by violence, with love and with sacrifice. This centurion not only changed his mind about Jesus, he must have changed his mind about what it means to be a son of God. Divinity is no longer tied to the splendor and the military power of the empire. Divinity, eternity, is where it looks like there isn't any splendor or power. 
The power of the empire is, is uh, coercive, right? It forces everybody else to submit or pay the cost. The power the centurion served crushes others and turns life into death. But the power of the cross gives itself for the sake of others and turns death into eternal life. Remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the waters of his baptism, those skies were torn apart. And the voice of God himself said, remember, this is my son. And now at Jesus' death, the curtain is torn apart. And a representative of the most powerful nation on earth made the same declaration. Surely, this is the son of God. And then it was finished. I think this was the last loud cry that Mark is talking about. The Gospel of John records it. The very last words of Jesus as he died on the cross. It is finished. Not a cry of desolation. It's not, thank God this is finally over with. That's not what this is. This is an announcement of victory. It is done, right? It is finished. It's accomplished, all of it. It's over. Jesus came to fulfill the covenant promises of God. Jesus came to complete God's work of salvation. Remember, Jesus had said earlier, my food, remember, my, um, uh, what gives me life, what gives me energy, what keeps me going, what, what sustains me, my food is to do the will of my Father and to finish his work. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Lord. He says, I have brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. And so when Jesus proclaims it is finished, I think he means all of it. It's over. It's done. The forgiveness of sin, done. Restoring the relationships, finished. The dark forces of wickedness, rebellion, and sin destroyed forever, achieved. It means that God has succeeded in accomplishing every single thing he wanted to do for us in Jesus. And what was needed to totally satisfy God, well, that ought to be enough to satisfy you. It ought to be enough to satisfy us if it was enough for God. So that's act four in the story of God. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All people have been alienated from God. It's our fault. We disobey God's word. We rebel against God's will. Even worse, we've ignored or we've straight up rejected the great love of God. But incredibly, unbelievably, it's not the guilty party who acts to make things right. You don't come to God and say, hey, how can I make things right? What do I need to do? What do I need to give? How do I need to act? How do I make things right with you? That's not the case here. It's the offended party who makes the first move. God doesn't demand that, that we've got to do something first to make up for our sins, and then, then he'll agree to, to, to forgive us and to love us once again. We don't make peace with God, church. God makes peace with us. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus died not to change God's mind about you, but to demonstrate God's love for you. 
there's an historical novel called The Shadow of the Galilean. And uh, in this novel, the, the main character is a guy named, uh, oh my word, I forgot the guy's name. Stephanus, perhaps? That doesn't sound right. It'll come to me during my nap this afternoon. Anyway, the main character, I should have I remembered this. The main character is also friends. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's also friends with Barabbas. Remember Barabbas, the murderous rebel who is released by Pilate the day Jesus is killed? So at the end of this book, Stephanus, maybe that is right, Stephanus gets a letter from Barabbas. I'm not going to read the whole letter from Barabbas. I'm going to read the end of it, though. This, this is powerful for me. Barabbas writes in this fictional novel, Barabbas writes, I barely escaped death. The price was high. Somebody else died in my place. Two of my friends were crucified with him. And ever since then, I've been asking myself, why? Why Jesus? Why not me? I know that Jesus is close to your heart. You defended his gentle way of rebellion and rejected my way of resisting. And now I'm inseparably bound up with him. And I keep thinking, what does this mean for me? If he has died in my place, then I am obliged to live for him. If he has died in my place, then I am obliged to live for him. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, I ask myself, why? Why Jesus? Why not me? Why would Jesus do this for me? Why would Jesus do it for you? Why would he? And it ought to fill us with a real deep, rich sense of gratitude to know that the answer is because he loves me so. He loves me so. But it should also create in us a sense of being inseparably bound up with Jesus, obligated to him. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you are one with God. When God looks at you, because of Jesus' work on the cross, he sees his righteous son. And so you are one with the Lord because he has restored the relationship, all of it, Everything's been fixed, and because of that, now you are free to live your life the way God always created you to live it before your sin wrecked it. Because of Christ, everything's new. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone's in Christ, new creation, right? New order. The Old Testament prophets always talked about how God was going to bring the rulers down from their thrones and lift up the poor and the needy. Those prophets had no idea it would be God himself who would leave his throne in heaven to suffer and die with the sinners and the oppressed so they could be lifted up to live eternal life forever. Let's end where we started. John chapter 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 
to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You don't need a complicated theology. You don't need a bunch of difficult theories to know that salvation for us and salvation for the world is found in Jesus Christ. But the cross of Christ is about transformation and renewal. Jesus doesn't just offer forgiveness and salvation. He offers life, real life. I have come that they may have life, he says, and have it to the full. God did not come here just to save you from your sins. He came to save you to life, more abundant life, eternal life, life in a righteous relationship with God and with others as true daughters and sons of his kingdom. Amen? Stand with me, church. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1 says, No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Don't you love that? No matter how many promises God has made, doesn't matter. Every single thing God has said that he's going to do in your life, in this world, in this city, all of it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's yes. God is a God of yes. We got a lot of people who say no all the time, not our God not in Jesus Christ. It's yes, yes. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Now, we're about to sing a song. It's going to be the last song we sing today together. Here's what I want you to do. I want to invite you to find somebody in this room who needs to hear that. Sometimes it takes somebody else looking them in the eye and saying it. Somebody besides a preacher up here screaming and yelling for 30 minutes, okay? Y'all are like, 30 minutes? That wasn't 30 minutes. Would you do that? Would you find somebody in this room who needs to hear, hey, God's promises to you, they're all yes in Jesus Christ. What God has said he's going to do in your life, it's a yes in Jesus Christ. Get out of your pew. Find somebody you think needs to hear that. Listen to the Lord. He may be telling you right now who needs to hear that. Maybe you need to hear it. I'd be so happy to tell that to you today. All of God's promises for you are yes in Jesus Christ. Let's receive that encouragement. Let's share that gospel affirmation. And let's sing together, church.